Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this episode, you'll hear Ray Christian. And we were throwing our pigeons up into the air to make them flip. But I'm assuming there's a lot of intellectuals in the crowd, so you don't know shit about pigeons. <laughs> so let me... That and more. But before that, listen, you want to do whatever it takes to make sure your business runs efficiently. But constant trips to the post office can definitely get in the way. All right? Eats up valuable time you could be spending on growing your business instead. So bring the post office to your desk with Stamps.com. You don't have to be a postal expert. Stamps.com makes it easy. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, using what you already have, your own computer and printer. Then just hand it to your mailman. Join the 500,000 small businesses that use Stamps.com like Risk and the Story Studio. We use Stamps.com and we love it. And right now you can use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Grand Unified. Behind me now, and this is our Live from Chapel Hill episode of this year. I'm so impressed with what Zach Ward has done with the DSI Theater there in Chapel Hill. Just a wonderful, wonderful place. Great community. And wow, was it a treat to see how many Risk fans there are down there. A couple of our storytellers here in this episode have been passionate Risk fans for a while. And we're just so honored and excited to be a part of the show. And I was so honored and excited to have them bring it the way they did. We're going to start with a young lady who is hard at work right now on a southern gothic novel for young adults. You can find her writing at laurenpatton.com. Here she is with a story we call Trigger. inside of a southern gothic novel actually I grew up on an estate where my father ran his criminal law firm inside of our house and it was also a work farm for all of the criminals murderers rapists child molesters child abusers like the worst of the worst that you could think of worked in my house which is you know obviously a great idea for raising a small little girl (laughs) 
that's the sort of thing that when you say out loud, you're like, no, no, no. But it seemed to happen a lot in my life. My relationship with my father was complicated for many, many reasons. When I think back on it, I honestly can't even really understand why I made him so angry. I think about all of the times that I would see him stare at me with just anger and hatred and the words that he would say to me and the way he would cut me down and tear me apart in ways that physical abuse never could. And I don't, I don't even know why. I don't know what I did. And in a lot of ways, that was the scariest thing. The first 18 years, scared was the main emotion in my life. I was scared of the people in my house. I was scared of my father. I was scared all of the time. With that knowledge, I believed that all people would probably kill someone eventually because by the time that I was 14, I knew more rapists, murderers, killers, child molesters, and child abusers than basically anyone else. I mean, other than my teachers. And from my experience, the reason so many of them came to my father was because he is a truly brilliant man and seems to be able to get anyone off no matter how violent the crime. There was a man who worked in our house who gutted a man in a knife fight and his intestines fell to the floor while the man was still standing. And I knew him as Jimmy, that's not his real name, but he saw me every morning and said, hi, Miss Lauren, how are you? And I'm like, you killed a man in a knife fight, hi. (laughs) So with this knowledge, I thoroughly believed that when someone came after you, you had to kill them or, or really beat them back because otherwise they might kill you or worse. The one thing in my life that really brought me joy and still does, I'm actually wearing my riding boots right now because they're one of my great points of sort of happiness is horseback riding. I've ridden since I was two years old and my father made that possible and my happiest memories with my father were fox hunting and show jumping and all of the many places that we rode together. Another aspect of having the criminal law firm in our house was that the secretaries were also in the house with my mother, myself, the criminals, and my father. But the secretaries weren't just secretaries, they were mistresses. And they paraded around the house often, many of them from very poor backgrounds, and they were just desperate to get out of their socioeconomic situation. And I understand as an adult that there were many very complicated issues going on, but as a child, all I saw was my father hurting my mother in this different way with these women that he had sex with in our house. I didn't ever see them having sex, but it was really obvious. I mean, even as a 14-year-old, which is how old I was when this happened, when I saw Crystal, which is not her real name, but is what I'm calling her, would walk through the house, and I could see her flashing her thong, and this was the 90s, so that was like extra hoary back then. <laughs> and, and the way she would touch my father in front of my mother, who is honestly a saint, and anyone that meets her would agree, she would just sort of look the other way in the way that polite southern bells do, push it down, denial is not just a river in Egypt, and... It hurt me, and it made me so angry. It made me so angry. I just wanted it to stop. 
And one day, I was taking my horse out to go riding Duke in my sort of escape from the chaos of Woodley, which was the name of our estate. And I would ride out to the boarding school that I grew up on, which is even more Southern cliche, hooray, which is less than a mile away, complete with swans and magnolias and beautiful lake. And he came out and Crystal was with him. And he said, Lauren, and just the sound of him saying my voice made my heart jump because you could never tell if it was going to be something really kind or something really horrible. And so I was like, yeah, what's up? He's like, you're going to take crystal riding with you. And I was like, I, at first it just sort of felt like I, he punched me almost. Like just, not because the words were mean at that point, but because horseback riding was my safe space. It was my one happy memory with my father. It was the time when I escaped And I felt like if I had to take his mistress out riding, then he was now making me culpable to his betrayal of my mother and our family. And I was just sitting there, and my mind was just sort of reeling, and I was like, no, no. And he said, God damn it, you psycho bitch. You are going to take her riding. And I was about to fight and, like, disagree some more. And then something... It wasn't the first time he called me goddamn psycho bitch. That was kind of his little pet name for me. Um, But for whatever reason, this time the combination of the coming in on my horseback riding time and calling me a psycho bitch and everything was all just too much and the mistresses and I just couldn't take it anymore and I came up with a plan. I thought to myself, I have power when I'm on a horse. And so I looked at him And I said, I'll take her riding. (laughs) And his eyes changed. (laughs) Because he was not expecting me to acquiesce quite so quickly. I was never a wilting violet. And Crystal's face just got this sort of devilish grin. For whatever reason, she enjoyed that my father was making me do something. I could just see she was enjoying making me uncomfortable. But I had my plan, so I smiled and I nodded, and we headed to the stable. And as we were walking, she starts in. Your daddy says I'm much prettier than you. I'm like, what the fuck? Why is my father comparing me to his, oh, did I mention I'm 14 years old and she is 19 years old and he is 55? Why is he comparing me to his 19-year-old mistress? Anyways, I let it drop. I just smile and nod. Your daddy says I have a much better seat than you and that I'm a much better rider than you because of it. Aw, bitch. (laughs) You did not just insult my writing. (laughs) So, we... Go to the barn. I have to saddle her horse because, of course, she doesn't know how to even saddle her own horse, which, you know, is infuriating considering she keeps saying, your daddy says that he's going to buy me a show horse and if I'm going to show on the A circuit just like you and I'm going to win Grand National every time and you've only ever won reserve champion. What the fuck is your problem? But I just smile and nod, smile and nod. And we head over to my boarding school where we're going to go riding because the back 200 are beautiful trails and I have a plan. 
And the horse I put her on is a very kind, gentle horse named Trigger. He is a trail horse. He will follow my horse anywhere he goes, which is great for me, not so much for Crystal. (laughs) One thing about Trigger is that I'm using the horse's real name. I hope that's okay. (laughs) One thing about Trigger, in my fox hunting group, they call him Rocket Ass because since he's a trail horse, he's not really a great jumper. So when he jumps, he basically just launches straight up into the air. And if you don't know what you're doing, you're going to fly off. So we head for the trails. <laughs> and we, if you're, I grew up in Georgia. And if you're familiar with Georgia, you've probably heard of a thing called kudzu. And... The sides of the trail, once we're on it, are basically walls of green kudzu and trees. So no horse is going anywhere. If, if Trigger were to decide he wanted to escape, he couldn't. And, and the whole way there, she just keeps on going. And I don't understand why. I really don't. But she just keeps going. Your daddy says, I'm so much better than you. Your daddy says that you're a terrible rider. And your daddy says that blah, blah, blah. I'm just... Shut the fuck up, lady. But once we're on the trail, I cue my horse, and immediately he listens like we're dancers and takes off at a full gallop, not a canter, not a trot. We are going like hellhounds are after us. And Trigger, because he's a good trail horse, takes off immediately as well. And almost instantaneously, Crystal is behind me, screaming and yelling and waving her hands and flying and flopping. And oh my goodness, this warmth starts to fill my body. (laughs) I'm so happy. And I look back and I just see her. She's so upset. I'm like, who's a better writer now, bitch? And we keep on going. And to her credit, she stays on for another five minutes. And then we head down... (laughs) a trail where I know there's a tree that has fallen down. And I make sure Trigger's still following me, align my horse up, count my strides, take the jump, easy peasy, I've done this a million times, perfect landing, spin around, because I want to see this piece de resistance, and I see Trigger take flight, and she's launched into space. Well, three feet above his back, to be precise, probably. And then gravity takes hold, and she crashes down onto his neck. And Trigger, this is my one regret, he is terrified. Because from his perspective, he's now being attacked by a predator from the sky. (laughs) So as soon as he lands, he takes off, crow-hopping, rearing, and bucking, And Crystal's foot gets stuck in the stirrup. She doesn't just fall. And she gets dragged. It's like 10 feet, 20 feet, 30 feet, 40 feet. I'm like, oh, fuck. Because I kind of wanted to maim her a little, but I didn't actually want to kill the girl. And and Trigger's like stepping on her and stuff. I'm like, shit, this is bad. So, you know, guilty conscious starts to step in. And I take off Indiana Jones-style pull back her horse while I'm riding mine, stop, trigger, get off, go check on her, pick her up. And she is just bloody, like, all over. Her face is bloody. Her fingers bent backwards. And I don't feel bad at all. <laughs> I grew up horseback riding. This shit is normal. 
Once, when I was in first grade, I broke my arm in three places, two places, compound. And my father made me get back on and ride for an hour. And I was in first grade. So I had no pity for this bitch. And I was like, look, you said you were a good rider. Get back on the horse. And she did. And we rode back to the house in relative quiet. And my father was waiting on the porch. And he is fake. He must have, he knew, it's like he knew this wasn't going to go great. And the ambulance came. Dad called. And I sat there waiting with them because I wanted them to know that I did this on purpose. I planned this. I executed it. And if they pushed me far again, I would do it again. I was tired of being pushed around. And all of the harshness, I was tired of it. I was done with it. I was not a doormat anymore. And I was not having any of it. And I saw a little thing sort of start to shift in my father's eyes. And I looked over at Crystal And I said, I don't ever want to see you around here again. I don't want to see you around my mother. I don't want to see you around my father. I don't want to see you here. And she just sort of whimpered and said, okay. And we put her in the ambulance. My dad stayed and closed the door. And dad just looked at me and said, God damn, Lauren. And that was sort of the beginning of him leaving me alone and understanding that he couldn't just push me around. I was not somebody that would just sit back and take it. I would fight back. And I was, that was really the beginning of me realizing that I could stand up for myself. I could not just be someone to be trampled. Thank you. everyone. <laughs> I remember when she first pitched me that story, she got to the point where the thing about Trigger is, and I was like, he farts, right? <laughs> this is going to be about a farty horse. Uh, no farts, um, but, you know, I'm sure we'll get ourselves a farty horse story at some point in time. <laughs> Our next storyteller, uh, he teaches a stand-up class right here at DSI, and it is taught by DSI's own Andrew Agapur. Hey, everybody. So I'm here to tell a story about my first real job. Uh, When I was 23, I got a job as a philosophy teacher at Trident Technical College in South Carolina. I can still remember driving out to the job interview. I was so nervous. My hands were shaking at the wheel. My mouth was dry. I I was sweating through my only dress shirt, and I really didn't want to have pit stains, so I found some leftover fast food napkins and (laughs) stuck them in my armpits. In case y'all are bad at context clues, I'm a really fucking nervous guy. I'm an anxious person. And I think that all goes back to my own childhood. I had asthma when I was a kid. I had chronic asthma, which meant basically that I couldn't do some of the normal things that a lot of kids do, like run or ride a bike or chew gum too hard. (laughs) Those things would cause me to start wheezing, and often I'd have to go to the ER or die. But usually ER was the better solution. 
And so I grew up in this lifestyle of always being really nervous and also always wanting to fit in. You see, the asthma also meant that I was always really small as a kid. It stunned my growth. So I was always the runt in the class. I had glasses. I had orthopedic shoes that my father got me, I think on a whim. <laughs> and I was, I was such a nerd. I looked, when I was a kid, I looked exactly like what would happen if Woody Allen got together and had sex with another Woody Allen <laughs> and had a baby. The crazy thing about all that was that when I was 17, in my senior year of high school, a new steroid was invented that cured my asthma over the course of four months. That then gave me all this oxygen, which must be like miracle grow for late onset puberty, because all of a sudden I grew 10 inches in the course of a year. So at the start of my senior year of high school, I was a five foot two asthmatic kid in orthopedic shoes, and then I went to college and I was six feet tall, no asthma, and I realized I didn't even need those damn things in the first place. I was a completely different person. I didn't ever want to tell anybody about this past. I kept it a secret at first. When I was dating my now wife, I admitted to her that I have this history with asthma, and she listened and she said, you know what, that doesn't surprise me because you've got the body of a healthy man, but the personality of an asthmatic boy. <laughs> and that's when I knew I was going to marry her because that was spot on. That's exactly who I am. That's who I am. Even right now, like all I want to do right now is just fit in. In my head, in like deep in my brain, y'all are the popular kids. And I really don't want any of you to spontaneously challenge me to some competitive playground sports. That's all I'm worried about. Red Rover, Red Rover, call Andrew over. Oh, don't do it. <laughs> so on the way to this job interview, that was the asthmatic personality boiling over. I got to this job interview a half hour early. I'm always early. I prepared over my notes because I thought, well, maybe there's going to be like a pop quiz on Rousseau or Thomas Hobbes. I have to be ready for this. I go to the office where the chair is, who I'm supposed to have my interview with, and I waited outside until exactly 3 o'clock. She said show up at 3-ish, so I'm going to be there at 3 on the 2nd. I knock on the door, and I find this woman typing furiously at her computer. She's got big blonde hair. She's like, oh, you must be Andrew. I'm like, yes. Oh, we're going to have to find a time for you, hon. Oh, I'm so sorry. Am I late? Did I do something wrong? I can come back. No, no, no. I mean, like, when do you want to teach? Maybe Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 9 o'clock? Would that work for you? I'm like, holy shit. Okay, yeah, that sounds great. (laughs) And I I was like, oh, I have to learn how to teach. Uh, When do I start? Oh, you start on Monday. This is a Friday. So I had two days to learn how to teach. (laughs) I started to get really nervous. And she's like, oh, don't worry. We have fun here. You know, like, I don't have them read and then give a lecture on like Plato. Instead, what I do, I have them watch Harry Potter and they can dress up however they want. <laughs> like, okay, I guess this seems a little bit easier. Uh, and, I, and I and clearly there's going to be no pop quiz. This is uh, very low stakes. So I went home that weekend and at first I was really nervous about having to plan this whole class, but over the course of the weekend, I got more and more excited. When you design a class for the first time, 
you get to decide what your persona is. I decided that weekend, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be the cool professor. (laughs) So the first thing I had to decide is my wardrobe, because I didn't own any nice clothes. I was like, you know what? I'm not going to be one of those stodgy old guys showing up in a long sleeve shirt. I'm going to wear a polo. Let my short sleeves denote that I am one of them. <laughs> and I had no money, so I went out to Target, and there, were, uh, there was a sale, three polos for $20. So I got red, yellow, and blue. And in my head, I was like, I am fucking nailing this because I teach three days a week. I'll just wear one shirt each day. No one will know I only own three shirts. That's how a 23-year-old man boy thinks about fashion. I had this vision when I got home with my polo and I I laid out the red one. I was like, I'm going to wear the red one on the first day. Make a bold first impression. (laughs) And I I, I had this idea that I was going to go to class and not bring any books or syllabi or a book bag even. I was just going to show up, get everybody in a circle, maybe switch my chair around backwards, you know, like A.C. Slater. (laughs) And just rap. Just, you know, deal with, like, what's going on, kids? How's life? I'm one of you. This is cool, right? That was my plan. So I, I drive on Monday. I get there at 9 a.m. I walk into the classroom. It's not a small 20-person class. It's an auditorium of 70 students who are all visibly emoting that they don't want to be there. Just, so I go in, I've got like no materials to like prove that I'm a professor, so none, none of them quiet down when I try to get their attention. And I get really nervous. And so my mouth went totally dry. And I thought, okay, right now I have to go get some water. No one even knows I'm the teacher yet. It's going to be okay. <laughs> so I go out the door. In hindsight, if I'd taken a right, there would have been a water fountain right there. Instead, I took a left instantly realized the error of my ways and so I decided to just run around the entire length of a rectangular hallway just ran as fast as I could so that I wouldn't like cross the threshold again and look like a loser so instead I'm like panting I drink as much water as I can I'm red in the face I'm sweating through my new red polo and that was in a nutshell how the first few weeks of the class went nobody respected me no one was into what I was doing Every time I went to class, this is a minor thing, but it drove me crazy, the door started to be locked because public safety wouldn't let me in early. And so I have to go in front of all my students who are waiting to get in and go like ask a real adult with a key to let me into the classroom. And then they'd all file in and they would just be really loud and they never quiet down for me. And when they did, I had these lectures that I was so excited about that they just weren't into. I really wanted to show them that philosophy was cool. And as a philosophy teacher, you're basically just telling the history of nerds. (laughs) And in my mind, I'm a nerd convincing these cool kids that nerds are okay. And I'm doing it with all these like stories about my life, like Man, I really wish I had read John Stuart Mill's Utilitarianism because that pizza party would have gone a lot smoother. <laughs> and they just, like, do not fucking buy it at all. There's, like, silence. I have all these moments where I'm pausing for, like, laughs and questions. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> I remember the breaking point. It was, like, three weeks in. I had a lecture on Plato and the forms. 
And I said, oh, okay, everybody, so Plato had this idea that in the forms, this other realm, this heavenly place, there's perfect versions of the normal stuff in the world. So in this classroom, we have a lot of things that are imperfect versions of their best possible ideal selves, like this stool or this chair has a bunch of tiny problems that make it fall short of perfection. Can anyone think of an example? Tom, who sits in the back, raises his hand and says, yeah, I got an example, like how Andrew's not a good teacher. (laughs) Oh, and everyone's cracking up. They love it. Tom knew exactly how to throw out these soul-shattering remarks exactly when I would opened up a space for conversation. The one student who stuck up for me was this girl, Ashley, a really tiny bookish person in the front. And she was like, hey, you should call him professor. Like, she didn't say I was a good teacher. She was like, that's not a good title to give to him when you say that. So I knew I got to change something. And I thought back to the very first day of training, and I knew I need some Harry Potter shit. That's what I need. So like, how can I get these students to have fun? There's a bulletin board at the college, and I checked it out, and there's an advertisement for something called Socrates Cafe. It advertised that a bunch of people get together on the fourth Friday of every month at the local Whole Foods Cafe and just talk about philosophy. And I thought, that's it. It was that day, so I emailed my students, and I said, come, I'm going to give you 10 points of extra credit on your worst exam. If you come to this thing, we're just going to talk about philosophy. In my head, it's like, that's going to be the first day I was never able to have, but at Whole Foods for some reason. Uh, So I show up at Whole Foods, and I'm a little early, and I try to figure out where this philosophy club is. I couldn't quite make sense of who could be the founders of this club, There was one, like, solo stoner dude eating tabbouleh. He didn't seem to have his shit together. There was, like, a couple of ladies with their free-range, organic children. And I was like, I don't think that's it. There were also some, like, old people. But old people, that's run-of-the-mill Whole Foods. Who knows? So I was like, maybe I'm early. I'll go ahead and set up some tables. So I get some tables ready. Sure enough, like 20 of these students show up because a bunch of them were ditching exams and they needed the extra credit. We all sit down, and as we form, I notice that this table of only three elderly people have a tiny little handmade sign that says Socrates Cafe. And I realize I'm now wrecking this geriatric book club (laughs) with my, like, 25 inner-city students who do not know how to behave in a Whole Foods. They're just like, this is not their setting. It's not their strong suit. Like, I call them over, and we gather, and I'm apologizing. And then all of a sudden, I hear at the back of my head, man, what the fuck? This is disgusting. Which is what happens when Tom tries kombucha. I'm like apologizing to these three old people and I'm telling him like, no, it's supposed to taste that way. It's what rich white people drink. Don't, it's, it's, it's okay. And this, the, these three folks do not want us to be there. It's very clear. We start the conversation. Oh, the topic. I forgot, to, I forgot about this. The topic, I'm not lying, that day was euthanasia. That was what I wanted to So they're like introducing the club. I'm trying to calm down my students. And this one gentleman, Bill, this older guy, he was real pissed that we were crashing his party. Bill had this thing, what he would do to kind of cut you off and to be a conversational sniper, he would wait until you used a $5 word. 
like existentialism or ethics. And he'd say, hey, define existentialism. And if you couldn't do it on the spot, he'd define it for you and then just take over and say whatever he wanted to say. So at first he started doing it to his own. Hey, define identity. No, I got some ideas about what identity is. Here it is. Get ready. Like, all right, Bill, whatever. Then he did it to me. I didn't really care. He did it to Tom. He was like, Tom, define ontology. And Tom was like, nah. (laughs) But then he did it to Ashley. Ashley was that favorite student of mine who defended me. She was this tiny, mousy woman. She was like 85 pounds. She had gotten into some really good out-of-state schools and had stayed because her boyfriend worked in the pizza place across the street from the college. She was just starting to come out of her shell, and she said that euthanasia is an ethical issue, and Bill jumped in and said, define ethics. She was crestfallen. And I knew in that moment, I need to intervene here. I need to say something just nuanced and clever enough to somehow defend Ashley, shut Bill up, but also ease the tensions, this weird rivalry between these two groups. I'm the middle person, and I need to get everybody in the right direction. But then I saw Ashley's lips start to quiver, and all of a sudden she wasn't Ashley, she was me. She was me when I was small and vulnerable and scared. And I looked at Bill, and Bill wasn't Bill anymore. He was every bully who'd ever made fun of me for being small or having asthma. And so whatever my nuanced idea was, this is what came out. Define definition, old man! (laughs) The crowd went silent. There was... Whole Foods has never been that quiet before. (laughs) The next sound that I heard was of a chair hitting the ground because Tom had stood up and just started going, Oh, shit! Oh, shit! Oh, shit! (laughs) Bill was totally deflated, which felt really good. Ashley was laughing... And the rest of the class was looking at me. And I knew we had overstayed our welcome, so the only thing I could think to say was, class dismissed. (laughs) And everybody left. I felt really good that day. That, That felt great. I felt like I'd finally, for the first time, become my own person, poised between these two groups where I couldn't find a way to fit in with both. I'd carved out my own identity. I went home that day and there were two emails in my school inbox. One was from public safety telling me that they were sorry about this key issue and that the auditorium would be unlocked from now on, which is great. That felt really good. The second email said that my payment had gone through, my first monthly payment. I think it was like for $600. That's what I was making every month for teaching three days a week. And I was really excited, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to treat myself. So I went to Target, and I got three more polos. <laughs> I, was, I got a purple one, so I was like, I'm, I'm the king of this class. I'm going to go regal. <laughs> so that Monday, driving to class, I was feeling really good. There was no sweat on my new purple polo shirt. Dry as a bone, didn't need those fast food napkins anymore. 
I show up to class, and the door is wide open, and the students are already sitting in the auditorium. I walked in, and everyone went quiet. Then Tom was in the very back, top left. He elbowed the person next to him and whispered something in his ear. And then he stood up, put his hand to his mouth, and I'll never forget what he said. New shirt! (laughs) And the whole class started laughing at me. But Ashley was laughing too. And so I started laughing with them. Thank you. Uh, Our final storyteller, it has been such an honor and a thrill to meet him. Just a wonderful guy. A good fan of the podcast for a long time now. And it's it's a real treat uh, to have worked on his story with him. He teaches a class called The Souls of Black Folks at Appalachian State. So please welcome to the stage, Ray Christian. All right, so the black guy has to go last. No problem. problem. So I was comfortable in the water. At least I was comfortable in the water for a black kid who grew up in an urban ghetto called Churchill in Richmond, Virginia during the 1960s and 70s. I was comfortable in the water because I liked to swim. I was comfortable in the water because I just enjoyed it. In fact, when I was 11 years old, I was the first black boy scout to win the mile swim badge. I loved to swim. I was comfortable in the water and I had experiences like uh, I damn near drowned in the pool. I damn near drowned in the lake. And I damn near drowned in the James River. Now I spent a lot of time on the James River because I loved to fish. And I was always looking for that special honey hole and these little islands that existed out in the middle of the river. And so I would take the chance to try to walk out there, swim out there, but I must have slipped and busted my ass probably a couple of dozen times. I've been taken away by the current. I got stuck on log jams. I got my ass cut up by branches. But over a period of time, I got comfortable and confident in my ability to do this, so it wasn't such a problem. But the thing is, river water is not like pool water, that sanitary chlorine (laughs) taste to it. And it's not like salt water, that's a little more natural. No, river water has a nasty, dangerous texture and feel to it, you know. If you're not used to it, it could be really shocking. Now, Churchill was the kind of place where my nighttime lullaby was the sound of passing freight trains. It was the sound of sirens and the sound of an occasional guy on the street going, What's up, motherfucker? Churchill was the kind of place that had hundreds of abandoned dogs and cats that roamed the streets aimlessly. It was nothing to see a dead dog or cat on your sidewalk, on the curb, or in an alley, swollen and bloated with maggots. 
Churchill was the kind of place where the insane and crazy could walk the streets, talk to themselves, threaten people, and nobody really gave a damn. Now, I was the kind of kid who was socially awkward, didn't have a lot of friends. I walked funny. I moved funny. There was something about my persona that made me a target. So every thug, every hoodlum, every badass, every gangster wannabe who wanted to kick somebody's ass for fun or practice, they came to me. I had a big ass target on my head. Now, I wasn't a little guy. See, I, shit. I was athletic. I was in good physical condition, but I was passive. And I wanted to avoid violence at all costs. But I loved animals. In fact, I loved animals so much, if I found a wounded dog or a wounded cat or a bird with a broken wing or I found turtles from the river, I brought them home. But of all the animals I had a chance to collect, I loved pigeons most of all. <laughs> now, there was a small pigeon culture in Churchill, and the whole thing about owning pigeons is a pigeon has the ability to get away from you, but he comes back and he goes away, and he comes back, and he goes away, and that's a damn wonderful thing. You got to love that. Now, the only place in Richmond that was worse than Churchill was a place called Fulton. And if Churchill was a toilet bowl, then Fulton was the corn-impregnated swirl of shit <laughs> at the bottom of the, of the bottom of the thing. Fulton was the kind of place where People also abandoned dogs and cats, and cars, and trash, and junk, and an occasional dead body. Fulton was the kind of place that flooded every three to five years, so it had a conscious smell of mold and mildew into the air. Now what drew me to Fulton was the fact that I had a friend who was handicapped, and he was into pigeons in Churchill, and he had people that lived down in that area. And my sister Janice lived down there too, and it was close to the river, so it gave me an opportunity to go down there. But more importantly, the pigeon guys down there, there was a much, much larger culture of guys that raised pigeons. Now this group of pigeon guys, it varied from about five to eight guys at any one time. But the three main characters as a group was a guy named Lester. He had a lot of gaps in his teeth, and he was prone to slobber a lot. And he was interested in all things criminal and all things sexual. He used to brag to me about that he had raped an old woman. He bragged about having molested little schoolgirls. He bragged about having forced anal sex on small boys. The other guy in the group was Smitty. He's kind of chubby, dark-skinned guy. And he pretty much stuck to everything that Lester would say. Lester farts, he says it's fucking music. Lester says ass, he goes <laughs> ass. <laughs> then there was Donnie. Donnie was shaving in middle school. I don't know what damn grade he was supposed to be in for sure. He lived with his grandmother who probably had some kind of dementia, so she didn't know much about his comings and goings from home. And Donnie spoke funny. For example, if you said something to him like about food, he might say, motherfucker, food won't fuck a hunger as a motherfucker, man. 
but you couldn't tease him. You couldn't ask him a question like, what did you say? He would go, motherfucker, you hurt when you teasing me, motherfucker. But I saw Donnie strangle a kid into unconsciousness for his milk money. So he wasn't a guy to be played with. When we were all together and we were throwing our pigeons up into the air to make them flip, but I'm assuming there's a lot of intellectuals in the crowd, so you don't know shit about pigeons. So let me, so let me explain this to you. You got homing pigeons that fly for distance and time and speed, but that's not what we were into. We were into a type of pigeons called rollers, and what they would do is they would flip, 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 flip almost to the ground. And in order to encourage them to do that, we would start screaming and hollering and slapping our hands, and the birds would flip, 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 and in that moment, I never felt like I had so many friends in my damn life. I felt part of the group. I was part of those guys. I never been so damn happy. But being friends with these guys came with a price. And that price you had to pay is you had to accept everything that they wanted to put upon you. Some of the games they liked to play, they'd always want to grab each other around the ass and just start humping on you. Especially the little guys, grabbing them around the race, humping on them, humping on them. A couple of times they did it to me. I remember Lester saying to me one day, Hey, Ray, you ever been fucked in the ass? I said, Hell no. But then I started noticing I was getting way too much damn attention from this guy. I remember one particular incident where we were all standing outside of an abandoned building. And Lester and Smitty took one of the smaller boys inside. We all stood outside. We know why. And we could start to hear the sounds of slapping skin. Sounds of, oh, oh, no, ah, oh, oh. We looked around. Dogs, sky, what's going on over there? We pretended like we didn't understand what was happening. When Lester and Smitty came out of the building, they were smiling, gave each other a high five. The boy was crying, not loudly. He just had tears in his eyes starting to well up. Nobody in the group said anything, and I didn't say a damn thing. Later, there was an incident where we went into an old abandoned factory building, and what we were trying to do was look for pigeons. And I was working my way up in the rafters. But through this big building and the hollowness of it, you could hear sounds easily being spoken. And while I was in the rafters, I heard Lester say, we're going to fuck his ass today. One of you guys get by that door. One of you guys get by the other door. We're going to fuck him today. Well, I heard that. I skimmied out the back, out the window, and I waited outside. I don't know why the fuck I stayed there. I should have left, but I stayed out there. About 30 minutes later, Lester comes out, and he is He's going, God damn it, Ray, your ass would have been fucked. You are lucky. You are one lucky fucking dude. I laughed. Well, one day, the boys asked me, hey, Ray, do you know the best place on the river to go fishing? Oh, shit. I was glad to hear that because finally they took their mind off my booty and we're talking about shit I could relate to. 
So we get down to the river, and I'm just walking, and I'm excited, and I'm going, yeah, there's an old abandoned dock over there, and there's some stuff over there, and there's habitat over there, and you can catch a lot of bass right there, and this would be a great place to fish right there, and I'm just walking. But I notice, before I almost step in the water, that no one's talking to me. No one said a word to me. And I turn around. And Lester's got his erect penis in his hand, and he's holding it, and he's reaching out to me and said, get your fucking ass out of the water, boy. You're going to get fucked in your ass. You're going to get pegged in the ass. And I said, no, uh-uh. I started backing back, backing back into the water. Smitty chimes in, yeah, you're going to get fucked in your ass, man. I heard one of the guys say, man, his ass is scared. Leave him alone. Smitty said, yeah, yeah. Lester chimes in. Oh no, he's gonna get fucked. You don't need to get wet, boy. You don't need to get wet. Get out of the water. I started backing up, backing up, and as he was reaching out for me, I could tell that he didn't want to get wet. And I was going back and back, and I was thinking to myself, I don't fucking want this. All I wanted to do was play with pigeons. I don't want to be fucked. I don't want to be killed. I don't want to die. All I wanted was friends. I just want friends. I just wanted to play with birds. I don't want this shit. And they were coming toward me, and as I went further and further back into the water, the current took me. And immediately when they saw that, everybody took off and started running. Well, the current took me swiftly, and it was carrying me down the river, and I tried to get as close to the bank as I could, and the branches were hitting me, slapping me, cutting me. The boulders were cracking my knees. I went about a quarter mile down the river before I finally managed to grab hold onto a branch, pull myself up on the bank. I was dirty. I was tired. I was cold, and I was fucking scared. And every time I would hear as much of a teeny crackle a branch, I would tremble up in fear. I don't want to die. I don't want this. And for a half hour, I was just petrified, standing there, waiting, wondering, these guys are going to fucking kill me. After about a half hour, I didn't hear anything else. I managed to crawl out of there, dirty, wet, nasty. I made my way across the lot back up to Churchill, into the neighborhood, and some nut or bum sees me and goes, hey boy, what are you doing wet? You look like shit, you know, you love the water, whatever. I said, man, yeah, I'm comfortable in the water. But you know, after that happened, I got the word that the guys thought I was dead. But later they found out I wasn't dead. And once they found out, they wanted to kill me. But I didn't want to go back to Fulton anymore to try to avoid them. And since that time has passed, I've often tried to reflect on the sexuality of these guys. See, in the place and the time that I lived, if these guys had sodomized me, it would have been my own fucking fault. No one in my community would have sympathized me. You see, because a boy, that shit couldn't happen to you unless you wanted it to happen. And the warped psychology that existed in my culture the penetrator, he's not gay. The receiver is gay. The ability to take a man and force your sex on him, that's macho. Nothing gay about that. That's warped. 
And since that time, I learned to understand that being gay don't have a damn thing to do with who's doing what, who's pitching, who's receiving, who's dumb, who's submissive, who's aggressive. Doesn't mean shit. It defines the nature of the relationship between two people of the same sex, love each other, and comfortable in that context. But I couldn't understand that then. In the context of the place that I lived, I'm gay. Be comfortable in your water. Thank you. That is it for this episode, folks. This is the Black Keys behind me now. And I'll tell you, that Ray Christian is something else. Quite an extraordinary guy. He uh, teaches a course at Appalachian State called The Souls of Black Folks. He's a huge Risk fan. He could quote from dozens of our stories to me. Uh, Just a real, real treat to work with him. Let me let you know what's going on with us as far as live shows go coming up. On June 26th, we are at the People's Improv Theater in New York City with W. Kamau Bell. Kamau Bell returns to the show. That will be awesome. On July 4th, we're in London, England. Come on out, London. We are at the Hackney Picture House. On July 22nd, we are in Chicago, Illinois. And on July 24th, we are right back at the pit in New York City and the Nerd Melt Theater in Los Angeles. Whenever you want to know where Risk is happening live next, go to risk-show.com slash tour. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Risk Show. On Twitter, I am at the Kevin Allison. Find out about the storytelling training that we do at our school, thestorystudio.org. We train people to tell stories in a corporate environment. We do one-on-one training, even over Skype, so you don't have to be in New York or Los Angeles. We have our online course that you can take in your own time, a video lecture series. And, of course, our group workshops in New York and L.A. Just go to thestorystudio.org. 
And don't forget, Risk is a proud and happy member of the Maximum Fun family of podcasts. And all of our podcasts are listener-supported. We very dearly need the help of the people who love our show. So go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and become a member or make a one-time donation. And be sure to earmark your contribution for Risk. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. You've got the body of a healthy man, but the personality of an asthmatic boy. <laughs> <laughs>